Well, let me ask you to open up and turn to John 17. John 17. And while you're turning there, let me say on behalf of uh, Dan and myself how grateful we are to each of our speakers who make it a point to come and to prepare and to serve us each year. Um, it's grateful even for us just to sit under preaching, and it's always just a, a wonderful time, and we're so thankful for these fellows who come and bless us each year at the conference. And let us say thank you to you for being here. Uh, there would be no conference if you didn't come, and at the end of the day, it's for you. Uh, this is an expression of your pastor's love for you. It is one way that we seek to serve you and to care for your, your souls. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has often said that the strength of a church can be judged by its Sunday night crowd. And what he means by that is that after a Sunday morning service, who comes back for more, right? Who has that hunger for a little more, a little more, even willing to deny themselves other things, to have a little more faithful preaching of the word of God. And so the fact that you're here tonight is a real sign of, of God's grace And I pray that your hunger for God's word would be contagious and that it would spread uh, throughout Rocky Mount and the world. Now, this final task before us is a insurmountable one. Uh, We have 30 minutes to look at one of the most profound, precious, and glorious chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, Throughout the history of the church, there have been many who counted John 17 as the highest peak in all of Scripture. In fact, among the Puritans, there were some who truly believed that this chapter is so holy, it should never be preached. Just simply read aloud, because they believed that any attempt to preach this passage would only detract from it and do it dishonor. It has been called the Holy of Holies of Sacred Scripture because in it we get a glimpse of the inner sanctum of Christ's heart. Uh, Nowhere do we learn more about the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ than here in John 17. Uh, The great reformer John Knox so loved this chapter that he regularly had this chapter read aloud to him as he lay on his deathbed. And we are told that he passed into glory, listening to John 17 being read aloud to him. Uh, This chapter is a little different than what has come before, but it's also connected. It has been called the greatest of all prayers, given after the greatest of all sermons. Our Lord Jesus has just delivered his final and most wonderful sermon to his disciples there in the upper room, and now he closes their time together before the garden, before the cross, with this prayer. It is a public prayer. It is Jesus praying to his Father in the presence of his disciples. Already, he has shown his great love for his father and his great love for those men in that room. He washed their feet and he taught them and he gave them precious promises. 
But now as the Lord Jesus looks up towards heaven and begins to pray, it's as if the doors of his heart are opened up and the great love of Jesus for his father and the great love of Jesus for those men and for the people that will belong to Christ, it just all comes pouring out like like a flood. So there is a healthy sense of fear and trembling and trepidation that we ought to have as we approach this conversation this communion between the Son and the Father in this prayer. So let's hear the high priestly prayer of John 17. This is the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so, Father, we need your help, and we need the help of the Spirit. Would you give us illumination? Would you give us eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to believe, wills to obey? Would you make your word bear fruit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this is the kind of passage that a church could study verse by verse through a hundred sermons, and there would still be yet more gold to mine. Uh, There would still be more depths to plumb. There would be still more fruit to be gathered. This chapter is rich in the way that the best desserts are rich. Uh, To try and cover what we just read in a few minutes is is like me asking you to eat an entire thickly coated triple chocolate cake the size of this room. It's impossible, and we're going to do our best anyway. So, since trying to digest this whole chapter is not realistic, I want to give you just five general lessons from the chapter. These are surface-level lessons, but I hope they will be enough to give you a taste of the glory that is here. So, number one, we learn in John 17 about true prayer. About true prayer. Friends, prayer is hard work doesn't come naturally to us. Like the disciples, we have to come to our Lord and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And thankfully, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave us a model, a structure, a pattern for prayer. But here in John 17, we have our greatest example of what true prayer looks like in action. In John 17, we see the difference between saying a prayer and praying. Here we find Christ's love for his Father and Christ's love for God's people all bound up into these earnest words of appeal. Here we see how to pray both with reverence and intimacy. Respect for God as holy and yet love for God as Father. Did you notice that Jesus lifted his eyes and prayed? That's not our custom. We tend to close our eyes, bow our heads, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's helpful to be reminded that that wasn't the typical pattern for prayer in the days of the Bible. I often wonder what benefits might be gained in our churches if we prayed together with our eyes open and our eyes looking towards heaven while still seeing around us the very ones with whom and for whom we are praying. And it is important to remember that this is a public prayer. These words were not chosen by accident. Jesus wants his disciples to hear what he is praying for them. His sermon is over. The time of teaching is not. And I'll just say in passing that there is a whole list of lessons that could be learned from John 17 to help those men who lead in the public prayers in their churches. So go study John 17 that way if you're one of those men. and You'll find a lot of helpful lessons for leading in public prayer. But perhaps the most important lesson about prayer here is the importance of earnestness. Because you simply cannot help but notice and sense and feel the sincerity, the emotion, the love that is propelling this prayer. And here is what marks true Christian prayer. 
earnestness. Jesus is not heaping up meaningless phrases like the Pharisees. He is pouring out his heart to God. Now there is order and there is thought to this prayer. It's not empty emotion. We should always compose our thoughts before going to God in prayer. You're entering the throne room of a king after all. But there ought to be a real fervency and a real honesty behind the words as you pray. Charles Spurgeon said, Prayer pulls the rope below, and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so languidly. Others but give an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continually with all his might. And that's the example we have here. Even the Lord Jesus Christ knew what it was to wrestle with God in prayer. Second, we learn in John 17 about the grand purpose of God. The grand purpose of God. This is one reason why this chapter is so helpful. In our lives, we are so prone to focus on the trees. This prayer takes us above the trees to see the whole forest. This prayer reminds us that our entire lives are just a small part of the great picture God is painting. The great story that God is telling. The great project that God is bringing to glorious completion. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, There is no greater ground of security in this world than to feel that you are a part of the grand plan and purpose of God. This has been true in my life. When I'm thinking about me, when I'm thinking about my fickle faith and how little progress I've made in holiness, I am so prone to discouragement. I can even begin to doubt my own salvation. But when I start looking away from me and start thinking about the great plan of salvation, the great scheme that God is working out, how I was chosen before the foundations of the earth, that I am part of the bride, a kingdom given from the Father to His Son as a love gift, part of this great plan to display God's mercy for all eternity, that's where I find security. It's not about me. It's about God's plan to show his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's about this great relationship between the Father and the Son, the love they have for one another, their purpose for the universe. And since the Father honors the Son and the Son honors the Father by saving utterly and completely even the vilest of sinners that believes with even the weakest of faith, I can be sure that even wretched me is safe and secure. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is no greater ground of security in this world than to feel, to know, to believe that you are a part of the grand plan and purpose of God. Third, we learn in John 17 about the intercessory work of Christ. Dear Christian, did you notice that Jesus prayed for you in this passage? He prays for his own glory, verses 1 through 5. He prays for those 11 disciples in that room with him in verses 6 through 19. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for us. 
He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is us in this room who are believers in Jesus. Us to whom the message of the apostles has come in the pages of the New Testament, and we have believed. Have you ever had the privilege, the gift, the grace of someone who was praying for you and you knew that their prayers win in heaven? You knew this is a godly man, this is a godly woman. Maybe you had a godly grandmother or a grandfather who humbly lifted you up before the throne of grace again and again. As a teenager, there were two elderly men in the church I attended who had told me, young man, I am praying for you. And I appreciated it then, and I appreciate it more now, because I now realize that if God does anything good in my life, it's in part to answer their prayers. These were dear godly men. James 5.16 says, The fervent prayer of a righteous man has great power. But friends, in John 17, this isn't a godly grandmother or godly grandfather pray. And this isn't a dear saint in your church. This is the very Son of God Himself. This is God's beloved Son. The apple of His eye. The very image of the Father. Surely the Father will not deny His Son anything He asks. What did God say to Christ in Psalm 2? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And I will make the end of the earth your possession. So here is the Son of God whose prayers surely move the hand of God and He's praying for you. Philip Melanchthon was one of the early reformers who worked alongside Martin Luther. He said, There is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered by the Son of God Himself. And of course, what makes this so wonderful is that Jesus wasn't just praying for us 2,000 years ago in the upper room. That was just a glimpse of what Christ is doing for us right now. What we have in John 17 is a glimpse of the present work of Christ. In the past, Jesus lived and died and rose again for us. In the future, Jesus is coming again to take us to himself, to where he is we may always be. But what is Christ doing for us right now? He is interceding for us on the merits of his righteousness. Jesus petitions the Father for you and for me for everything we need each day. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He is the go-between. We go to Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name, and then Jesus takes our prayers to the Father. The Father gives every grace that we need and puts them in the hands of Christ. And Christ through the Holy Spirit brings that grace to us. The Lord Jesus is our go-between, our petitioner, our intercessor before God. And because of who He is, no prayer of Christ on our behalf will ever go unanswered. How do you know that everything's going to work for your good? How do you know that God's grace is always going to be sufficient for you, even on Mondays? How do you know that there's never going to be a day when God's mercy suddenly runs dry for you? Here's the answer. You have an advocate in heaven, 
the greatest of all advocates, and with him at God's throne, you have nothing to fear. Because the Father will never deny the Son anything he asks. And what he asks is that you be brought safely by the Spirit of God to the last day and into heaven itself. What kind of prayers does Jesus pray? Verse 11, keep them. Verse 16, keep them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Verse 24, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory. When such prayers as these come from the heart and mouth of Christ, you can be sure you will be kept. And you will be sanctified. And the church of Christ will be made one. And you will spend eternity with Christ beholding his glory. It is as certain as the love of the Father for the Son who asked it. Number four, we learn in John 17 about the priority of unity. The priority of unity. It's really something that Jesus is only hours away from bitter betrayal and intense pain and the wrath of God poured out upon his human soul because of our guilt And yet in this prayer, we see that his holy heart and mind are focused on this issue, that his people would be one. Verse 11, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. It turns out that part of God's great plan for the world is to display the glory of his grace and the glory of Jesus through a people who are made one. The followers of Jesus best show the power of his grace and the power of the gospel when all of the things that divide us are taken away and we are united together in common faith, common love, common service, common mission. So when it comes to your church, do you share the priority of Christ? Are you contributing to the unity of your church? Are you an encouragement to your pastor's Are you a servant to your brothers and sisters? When conflicts do arise, and they will, we're a bunch of sinners. My students, we were studying Moby Dick today, and uh, we were reading that part where uh, Herman Melville says, we're all cracked in the head and in need of mending. That's us. Okay, we're all crackheads. Isn't that what we said, George? We're all crackheads. We're all cracked in the head. So so conflict's going to come. When conflict comes, do you follow Matthew 18? Do you work hard to bring peace in a biblically faithful way? Do you choose not to listen to gossip, knowing from Proverbs 17.4 that you can sin, not just by gossiping, but simply by being one who listens to gossip? Do you encourage your church body by being present at the stated meetings of the church? And are you working to help mentor and disciple those in the faith who are younger than you in their walk with Christ? So that's unity in in each local church. Now, this conference is special because we have several churches represented here coming together. 
And we're called to pursue unity, not just in each local church, but also across churches. We're part of the church. So let's be honest. When we hear friends or neighbors are joining that other church and not our church, do we rejoice with them? When we hear that God is blessing that church down the street and it's a Bible-preaching church and it's a gospel-believing church and they're baptizing people or they have new members coming in or they're sending folks out on the mission field, are we able to rejoice with them? We're part of the church. Oh, may God rid us of every bit of bitterness and covetousness and envy and jealousy that would keep us from being able to rejoice with other churches when they rejoice and to weep with other churches when they weep. When you hear that there's a division in a church down the street, when you hear that there's conflict, when you hear that there's scandal, do you gloat or do you grieve? As local churches, we ought to be able to weep with sister churches and rejoice with sister churches. I love the spirit of oneness represented by this conference. I love the friendship represented by the pastors who come and who speak. I love the friendships in this room that that go across the different churches that we belong to. And what we've had over these three evenings is just a tiny taste of the wider and more diverse and grander unity that we will know in heaven. The priority of unity. Number five, we learn in John 17 about the true extent of God's love for us. This is the most astounding truth in the entire prayer. Verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. And here's what the world also is going to come to know. And loved them even as you loved me. Why are you still sitting in your chairs? You should be just passed out. I mean, there's, that's, this is not believable except that it's in the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. Jesus says that the Father has loved us even as He has loved His only begotten Son. Jim set me up good for this last night. Really well. Let's go a little further a little deeper. What are the words we would use to describe the love of the Father for the Son? There's nothing in the universe that compares The love of the Father for His beloved Son. A million atomic bombs. The explosion of a supernova. Nothing compares to the force of God's love for His Son. And this love, this ancient, powerful, joyful, enduring love that God the Father has for His dear Son, we are told, is the same love that God has for us. We are the bride, Christ is the groom, and just as God the Father loves His Son, so that love now encompasses us, welcomes us, embraces us as Christ's bride. We are one with Christ. We are one body with Christ. We now swim in the same love that Jesus lives in from His Father. The more we understand this, 
and we can't. I mean, Paul, even, Paul even says, I pray that you will come to understand the, the, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, right? I'm praying that you will know what you cannot know. I'm praying that you will understand what is ununderstandable. <laughs> but the more we at least begin to get a taste of just how loved we are, we will find that we can need people less and therefore we can love them more. Read Ed Welch on that. When people are big and God is small. Need people less because God's everything you need. And when you need people less, you can love them more. We can drink deeply from the never-ending fountain of the love of Jesus Christ. And because he's everything we need, we can just overflow and overflow and overflow in love around us. Verse 26, Jesus prays that the incomprehensible, supersonic love of God for Jesus and for us would take root inside of us. In other words, that the same love that God has for the Son, the same love that God has for us, would be in us pouring out to others. As God loves us, and we live in that love, and we swim in it, it should begin to ooze out on everybody else in our lives. And real love is not easy. Some of us were talking about that this week. We use this word love a lot, but when it comes down to it, loving people is very hard. It can be frustrating. Loving people can take time and energy and emotion and willpower. And frankly, sometimes loving people can leave you weary and numb, especially when people you're trying to love don't want your love, especially when people you're trying to love don't want you to love them the way Christ commands you to love them. I think it's Andrew Peterson who said, love is not a feeling in your chest. It is bending down to wash one another's feet. And sometimes the toenails scratch you. And sometimes the smell isn't so good down there. But here's where the strength to keep on loving comes from. In fact, here is the truth so sweet that if you really believe it, it will get you through every trial that you ever go through in this life. The same love that God the Father has for His Son has been poured out on you. It surrounds you. The love of God is an impenetrable fortress around you that no power of darkness can bring down. Surely, certainly, absolutely, goodness and mercy are going to follow you all the days of your life. And then you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So be encouraged. Lift up your head. See the love of God for you. See the love of Christ for you. And as you live in that love, walk in that love. And may we love God. And may we love our neighbor. And may we love one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for three evenings, six messages of glory. Thank you that in every message the gospel was heard, the, the news of Christ's love for sinners, the news of your mercy. Father, thank you that you helped us sense a taste of your goodness and compassion. But Father, I pray that what we've heard would not be left in this room but that your truth would be buried deep within our souls, that we would be transformed. Make us patient. Make us kind. 
Make us humble. Give us self-control. Give us a real sense of partnership with those in our own church. And give us a real sense of partnership across churches. Unite us, Father, in the mission of glorifying Christ. Give us a love for the lost. And give us a burning desire for the day when Jesus will come back. Father, it's only Tuesday. There's still several days left before Sunday. Would you be our strength? As we carry out our various callings, would your grace continue to be sufficient for us? Give us wisdom and discernment. And may the fuel that keeps us going be the love that you have for us in Christ. Thank you for all your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.